Who would risk their life for a lie? Who would put themselves into mortal danger for a lie? The resurrection of Jesus and the declaration of his lordship became the crucial motivating factor for the apostles to go forth with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We saw an illustration of that from our scripture reading this morning. They would have to be certifiably insane to risk their lives, to encourage others to risk their lives for a lie. Moreover, others who heard their message, having lived during the same time period, would have easily have been able to discredit their message if it was a lie. And yet when we read the New Testament about those early days, and we see those who were in the know, who were closest to the action, we see them not largely scoffing or turning away, but to the contrary, we see large numbers of those coming to faith in Jesus. And make no mistake, they were turning to faith in Jesus. The apostles were not making disciples of themselves. They were not establishing their own legacy, their own ministry, their own dynasty. To the contrary, these people who first believed were putting their faith in Jesus, one who was said to have been crucified, one who was said to have died on the cross. They really had no good reason to trust the word of the apostles unless they were telling the truth. And unless God had confirmed it to them. The apostles were absolutely convinced about what they had seen and heard concerning the risen Christ. They were convinced that Jesus was risen from the dead, that he was indeed Lord and Messiah of the scriptures. Peter makes this clear in Acts chapter 2. He says there, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He says, this Jesus God raised up, and of all that we are witnesses. We have that old song, he is Lord, he is Lord, he is risen from the dead, and he is Lord. Every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That was the anthem song of the first century church. That has been the anthem song of every century church thereafter. The reason why we are a church, the reason why we gather together is because Jesus Christ is Lord, because he is risen from the dead, and because his resurrection makes an actual difference in our lives. Faith in him makes a difference. Well, we are returning to our second topic in the series titled, What the Church Must Do. And here we're talking about the fact that we must preach the gospel. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20 is a reminder that we're called to make disciples of all nations in obedience to Jesus, knowing that he is always with us. And as we'll talk about today, that involves the preaching of the gospel. Last week, we considered verse 18, which is the basis of our calling. And the basis of our calling is very simply that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the one to whom God has granted all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus has total authority as Lord. There's no one higher. He is the boss, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He has a triumphant authority. He always lived to do the will of the Father. He was obedient even to the point of death on the cross. And therefore, he was highly exalted as Lord over all. It was promised to him that he would have the nations as an inheritance. God said of him, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I presented you with a catechism question. Why should the church make disciples of all nations? Why should we go forth into all the world? Why should we approach people from every tribe and tongue and nation and proclaim the gospel to them? Why should we endeavor to make disciples? What right do we have to do that? 
People ask that question all the time nowadays. What right do you have to try to impose your truth on someone else? Well, th- I mean, the whole conversation about truth is kind of silly because there's only one truth. That, I mean, in order for truth to be truth, it has to be singular. You can't have multiple truths that are contradictory. That is illogical. But the reality is that the reason why we go forth as the church, the reason why we endeavor to make disciples is because the Lord, who is Lord not just of the church, the Lord of heaven and earth commands us to do so. That's why we go. That's why we make disciples. Well, that fact, beloved, has motivated the church for a millennia now. Again, it's motivated the church in their evangelistic, cross-cultural missions efforts for thousands of years. And again, it is to this motivation that we return, particularly in the text of Matthew 28. If you haven't turned there, go ahead and turn to Matthew 28. I'll just read for this morning, verses 16 through 20, and um, we'll pick up where we left off. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. We pray that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight as we come before your word. For Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I mentioned last week in this text that we have three points. We covered the first point last week, but three points in this text. The basis of our calling, that was verse 18 that we already covered. The business of our calling in verses 19 through the first part of 20. And then the last part of 20 is the blessing of our calling. The basis, the business, and the blessing. We looked at the basis again last week from verse 18. Let's look at the business of our calling in verse 19. There again, it says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, there's a bit of a technical note that we need to understand here. The go in most English versions is a bit misleading. When we learn how to study the New Testament letters, particularly in their original language, we're told to look for a primary command or action in the sentence or in the broader section to be able to identify the message, to know what the passage is saying. We look for the primary command. And as it reads in the ESV, the go looks like the primary command. It looks like they're being told to go forth. It looks like an imperative in the English. However, the go is not the primary command in the text. The go functions more like an explanation. I said this is a bit of a technical note, so bear with me. It's important. The go functions more as an explanation. It tells you how to make disciples or really the conditions by which you are to make disciples. And in this respect, the go really functions just like two other key words in this verse, baptizing and teaching. These are all conditions. This is how you are to go about making disciples or the conditions in which you are to go about making disciples. The primary command in the text is to make disciples. And so we have that primary command to make disciples and three different conditions to go baptizing and teaching. Well, let's look at that first condition to go. And I think that idea of to go there can be best understood as more like as you go or in your going or while you go, make disciples. 
This text has for some time been the primary text used to encourage cross-cultural overseas missions work, especially with the emphasis on the word go. If you've heard a missions-themed sermon from this text, you'll often hear the emphasis on go. We need to go. We cannot stay where we are. We have to go forth. We have to go out into all the nations. As a point of fact, the disciples did go. They did branch out from Jerusalem. Jesus spoke prophetically about this from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Some people have taken that verse in Acts chapter 1, 8, plucked it from its context and built a whole theology of cross-cultural missions whereby you have to go to your Jerusalem first and then you can reach your Judea and Samaria and then you can go to the ends of the earth. Like there's a three-step pattern here. That's not what Jesus was talking about in Acts chapter 1-8. He was speaking plainly about what was going to happen to them when they received the Holy Spirit. That's how the text reads. He's just giving them kind of a step-by-step, prophetically speaking about what's going to happen. When you receive the Holy Spirit, when the power of the Holy Spirit comes, then you will be my witnesses, and then you will go forth in all of these different areas, and you'll be my witnesses. They were going forth, in other words. Jesus acknowledged that they were not going to remain in Jerusalem. They probably would have rathered stay in Jerusalem, but the persecution that they encountered when they started to become witnesses, just like we saw from Acts chapter 4, the scripture reading earlier, the persecution and the pressure from the society forced them to continue to move forward, to go out. Back in our text in Matthew, the scope of our disciple-making does involve all nations, but that doesn't come from the term go. Nevertheless, the term go is significant in Matthew, if only for the fact that the assumption is that as we go about life, as we progress through life, as the circumstances of life change for us, just like it did for the disciples, regardless of what's happening in our lives, as we go through life, we need to be about the business of making disciples. The question is, for all of us, as you go about life, Christian, are you in the business of making disciples? Is that in your heart? As you think about your everyday life, as you go about your week, as you move from career to career, as you consider career choices, your education choices, as you consider marriage, as you consider child rearing, as you go forth in Christian life, as you think about your grandchildren, as you think about retirement, do you consider your responsibility to make disciples of all nations? Because there's no retirement age for that. There are no qualifications for that. This is a command to all disciples to make disciples. As you go, is that in your heart? Moving on again, the text says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We see the therefore, which is usually put in front in sentences like this. It's a transitional statement intended to bring our attention back to what came before. What came before informs what comes next. Someone else said before, if you see a therefore, you should look back to see what is there for. Well, this therefore is here as a reminder of the fact that all of what follows this command to make disciples is rooted in what came before. And what came before was Jesus's declaration that all authority in heaven and on earth has been granted to him. And so, again, by way of reminder, the fact that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him is the reason why we must obey this command and the reason why, as we go, we must be about the business of making disciples. So we saw the first condition again, as you go do this, and we know that we are to obey on the basis of Jesus's lordship. But now again, what's the primary command? Well, we've said it multiple times already. It's make disciples of all nations. This is the primary concern of Jesus for his disciples as he's preparing to ascend to heaven. These are some of his final words to them. Or what does it mean to make disciples? A disciple is defined as one who engages in learning through instruction from another. A disciple is a pupil, a student. To make a disciple is to make someone a student, to cause someone to engage in learning through instruction from another person. 
In other words, inherent in the idea of making disciples is the need for instruction. There can be no disciple, there can be no disciple making without instruction. In this case, discipling requires a teacher. It requires some kind of teaching and it requires a student. And that should make sense, right? In this case, the teacher is us. That's the command to make disciples is given to disciples of Jesus Christ. All of us who are already disciples of Jesus Christ are responsible for making disciples. He does not limit this command to the professionals, just to the pastor, just to the professional evangelist, just to the one who feels called to do it or feels particularly gifted in evangelism. No, this command is for all of us. All of us are commanded as disciples of Jesus Christ to make disciples. Now, we may not all be involved to the same degree in the whole process. We may not all do the exact same thing. Some people are going to be designated evangelists. Some people are going to be the ones who the evangelist takes out. Some people are going to be the ones who just pass out tracts, invite others to church. Some of us are going to be the ones who talk to people when they come to church about the gospel, about Jesus. Some of us are going to be missionaries. Some of us are just going to support missionaries. We may not all be involved to the same degree, but we all must be involved in the business of making disciples. We are the teachers if we are making disciples. Discipling requires a teacher. That is us. It also requires teaching. The teaching in this case is obviously Jesus' teaching. Now, I would distinguish here between the teaching of the gospel that leads one to become a disciple and the teaching that one receives as a disciple. The distinction is not explicitly stated in the text, but I think it's an important distinction for us to understand. There are certain elements of the word of God that are necessary for one to understand in order to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. And then there's the whole body of teaching, the breadth of which is not necessary to become a disciple, but the breadth of which is taught once we are disciples. Nevertheless, discipleship is the goal. And therefore, there must be some measure of teaching involved at both stages. We started out last week with a reminder that the preaching of the gospel must involve words. Words are not optional. I shared this text last week. Paul says in Romans 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The gospel must be preached. It must be heard. And it is the hearing of the gospel that faith that that faith becomes operative. Well, what are some of the essential elements of the gospel itself? Whenever I have a membership interview, I ask someone if they can tell me what the gospel is. If someone can explain to you what the gospel is, then it stands to reason they understand the gospel. It's fine and it's nice if you say you're saved, but if you don't understand the gospel, then how are you saved? How do you how do you actually have faith if you don't fully understand the gospel? And again, we're not talking about I'm not talking about the fact that I want to hear a seminary student's rendition of the gospel. I'm not talking about hearing um, a quotation from a book on theology about the gospel. I just want to know that you know that Jesus saved you from your sins, right? Like I need to be able to hear that. But what are some of the essential elements of the gospel message? Perhaps the safe way, safest way to consider this is just to look at scripture itself. And some people will look at passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 15, right? There Paul says in verse three, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he talks about all the people that he appeared to. And that's not an insignificant point because he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Then he appeared to James and Paul says, last of all, he appeared to me. So his resurrection, in other words, was confirmed. It was attested to. There are many witnesses to the resurrection. And again, that was significant for the people in the first century because no one's going to follow a dead savior. But they did believe and they did follow precisely because he is risen from the dead. Others will look at passages like John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We see a number of different elements from either of those passages. Jesus died. Jesus rose again for the passage from before. 
God loves the world. He gave Jesus. He sent him. There has to be some measure of faith involved. Some of these different elements. Then there are whole gospel presentations that are widely circulated within the church. And these gospel presentations, generally speaking, will bring together a number of different verses. I mean, you've probably seen or heard about the four spiritual laws. Maybe you've heard or you're familiar with the Romans road to salvation. And that basically pulls together a number of passages from the book of Romans to kind of explain the gospel message. Romans chapter three, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. We fall short of his standard. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Because we fall short of his standard, because we sin, we deserve death. That's what we get paid for sin. But God had a plan to give us the gift of eternal life, and that's only in Jesus. And God sending Jesus was all about his love for us. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't wait for us to get our act together. He sent Jesus to die while we were sinners. You cannot work to earn this salvation. You must believe, Romans chapter 4, verse 5, the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And then you have to confess it with your mouth. Romans chapter 10, because if you confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. And so we see there are a number of different elements of the gospel in that presentation. You also have something like the two ways to live presentation. And I've often spoke of this and I I'm endorsing this. I am actually endorsing this. There are sometimes when I'll talk about something or refer to something and I don't endorse it necessarily or all of it. But this particular gospel presentation, I really like. We have tracks from two ways to live that are put out by Matthias Media. They have an app for it, too, in case you're interested in that. Um, and the app literally has everything that the track has in it. And the track has pictures, guys. I mean, you can't like how can you. I mean, how, how can you uh, how can you say no to pictures? It has pictures, a little diagram. There's a whole training package that we have that we could use to teach you how to draw these little diagrams. Like, I mean, it's stick figures. It's nothing significant, right? It's just like little diagrams about all of these different points. God is the ruler of the world. Re Revelation 411 you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will that we were create, they were created and had their being. And that's significant. The thing that I like about this the most is that it starts with a broader view of who God is. It starts with indicating that God is, in fact, Lord over all. He is the creator and therefore, if he's the author, he has authority over all of us, right? And so it starts with that. It doesn't assume that people are churched and that they have a concept of God in their minds. It gives them a concept of God from Scripture that all starts with the authority that God has over us. But we rebel. Isaiah 53. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. We don't follow the rule of God. We don't follow our creator, the author, the one who has authority over us. We rebel. And because we rebel, we deserve death. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27, just as people are destined to die once after that to face the judgment, we die and then we face God's judgment because of our sin, because of our rebellion against him. And yet, because of God's love, he sent Jesus to die for us. Isaiah 53 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We talk about the substitutionary death of Jesus. That instead of us dying for our sins, which we deserve, Jesus died for us. He took our punishment for us. But he didn't stay dead. First Peter chapter one, verse three. Praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ and his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus is risen from the dead. Again, that point 
is a thread that runs through every gospel presentation that you'll ever read in scripture. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He is Lord over all. He has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He has conquered our greatest enemy, which is death. He has conquered sin for us. Not only has he conquered sin and death, but again, he is now Lord. And so he is the one whom we must obey. We must submit to John 336. We have two ways to live. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. And one of the things that I enjoy the most and I'm, I'm grateful for about this particular gospel presentation is that it forces people to make a choice. It makes it very clear that you must make a choice and that your choice has very real consequences. So which way do you want to live? Do you want to continue to live life your way and suffer the wrath of God? Or do you want to live life the way that God desires for you under the authority of Jesus, who is your savior, who died for you? Which way do you want to live? So I just want to call out just in mentioning those different gospel presentations. It doesn't really matter which one you use. I think there are a number of specific elements that we need to make sure are are a part of any gospel presentation. That's why I like the two ways to live, because this captures all of those different elements. But we have to say something about who God is. We have to talk about his authority as our creator, as our ruler. We have to say something about this current state of man, that we are not good people by nature, but that we are, in the eyes of God, dirty, rotten, stinking sinners. No matter how you say that, but you have to say it. And 10 times out of 10, every time I've ever talked to someone about the gospel, shared the gospel, and I've said something like, have you ever broken God's law? Have you ever lied? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever cheated? 10 times out of 10, the person has agreed with that. We all sin and fall short of God's glory. None of us are perfect. And if they don't agree to it, they are lying to you. And they know they're lying to you. But we have to say something about that because that's how we stand before God without Christ. We stand as sinners. We deserve his judgment. Jesus is the one God sent to be, to take care of our sin, to take away our sin, to give us forgiveness. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't. He is, he did die for our sins. He is risen from the grave and we must believe in him or else face the wrath of God. Those elements have to be true. Who is God? Who is man apart from Christ? Who is Jesus? What has he done? He is risen from the dead. He is Lord and we must submit to him. We must believe in him. Those elements must be present in any gospel presentation. Well, this gospel, this truth must be communicated through the people of God. And again, the preaching of the gospel requires words, and these words are passed on through disciples to those who would be disciples. It is, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that through us, through disciples of Jesus, God is making an appeal to humanity that they be reconciled to him. And we must get this message right, right? Because, again, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, because the gospel is the power of God to save those who believe, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. So we have to get the gospel message right. The Holy Spirit works through the preaching of the gospel. When the gospel message go forth, that's how the Holy Spirit works. That's how he operates. That's how he moves forward. When God's word goes forward, the Holy Spirit moves on the hearts and minds of those who hear. I mean, John said that the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. Paul said that we're dead in our trespasses and sins apart from Christ. And he said elsewhere that the natural man, the unsaved man, cannot understand the things of the spirit of God. There's no way that anyone will be saved on their own. The spirit must go forth. And in order for the spirit to go forth, the word of God must go forth. And that has to happen through us. Well, 
While taking a step back, again, discipling requires teaching. Requires a teacher, and that's us. It requires teaching. And that is the teaching of who God is, who we are as sinful humanity, who Jesus is, and that we must respond to him. As we summarize the truth of the gospel message, these things must be communicated to those who would be disciples. But there's also, again, a set of truth, uh, a whole body of truth that must continually be taught to those who are disciples, to those who put their faith in Jesus. This is, as Jude says, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, the whole body of teaching. From Genesis to Revelation, the whole body of God's word must continue to be taught to disciples, to those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, how else are we going to know what our commander in chief desires from us? How else are we going to know how to live, how to walk wisely, how to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel that we just learned about? Unless we stay close to the word of God. This is why the word of God is so central in the life of the believer. This is why the teaching of the word of God is so central to the church. We gather on Sunday mornings, not just for the songs, not just for the fellowship, but we gather together around the word of God. And in fact, all of our songs are in are infused and are informed by the word of God. Our prayers are informed by the word of God. The preaching must be informed and it must come from the word of God. If I or any other person stands up here and preaches a message that is not from God's word that you cannot see in Scripture, get them out of here immediately. Because the word of God leads to life. We need to hear the voice of God. We need to hear the voice of our commander in chief, the voice of our Lord, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. We need to hear from him. We talk specifically about the role that the preaching of the gospel has. One thing that should be abundantly clear to the church from this passage is that it's not enough just to preach the gospel. If all we ever do is preach the gospel and run, then we're failing those to whom we preach. Because the goal in this passage is not just saved people, but it's disciples. It's not just people who hear the gospel, but it's people who are fully devoted and fully following the Lord Jesus as his disciple. I've been a part of some evangelistic trainings that encourage little things like making a mark in the back of your Bible every time you share the gospel, almost like it's a trophy or a symbol or like you've done something great just because you've shared the gospel. But Jesus is not content with gospel preaching only. Again, the goal has to be disciple making. Again, discipling involves a teacher and involves some kind of teaching and it involves students. And in this case, the students are all nations. I said earlier that the scope of our disciple making involves all nations, not because of the go. But because Jesus literally tells us to make disciples of all nations. The word for nations is a word that simply refers to people groups. We get our English word ethnicity from it. We talk about different ethnic groups around the world. The fact that Jesus says all nations underscores the universal nature of our disciple making. Whereas in chapter 10, verse five of Matthew, Jesus sent the disciples out to take the good news of the kingdom to Jews and exclude the Gentiles. He he told them specifically not to go to the Gentiles, but to stay to the house of Israel while he was present during his earthly ministry. His focus was for the lost sheep of Israel. And yet at this point, after he has risen from the dead, After all authority in heaven and on earth has been turned over to him as Lord, the God man, Jesus Christ. He sends out the disciples, not just to the house of Israel, but to all peoples. Without distinction. Some people see this as a new initiative, and in a sense that it is a part of the new covenant, it is a new initiative for Israel. And yet the universal nature of redemption was shown as far back as Genesis chapter 12, when God made clear that through the seed of Abraham, in Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter one, that it is only in Christ that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is given. 
Nevertheless, the call is to make disciples of all nations, all people groups, all ethnicities, without distinction. One way to understand our responsibility here is to acknowledge that our ministries ought to reflect that command. Our churches ought to reflect that command. While it is true that we tend to gravitate toward those who are like us, that doesn't excuse or negate the command of Jesus. A church, any church, wherever there are people, wherever there are ethnic groups, should reflect the command of Jesus to make disciples of all nations. Shame on us American Christians whose America is filled to the brim with the nations of the earth and yet whose churches still remain some of the most segregated throughout the world. And while in many places in the world churches are largely composed of one ethnicity because there's only one ethnicity, ethnicity in the area, we don't have that excuse in America. Again, from Genesis, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's always been a part of the scope of God's redemption. From Genesis to Revelation, Revelation chapter 5, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among all the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people from, for God from every tribe and tongue and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. From Genesis to Revelation, this has always been the plan of God. That there would be a people called out from the world as priests to God from every tribe and tongue and nation. I'm grateful that the Catonsville Baptist Church doesn't have that problem, but that we have a number of different nations, ethnicities represented in our congregation, and we should labor both in prayer and through our gospel preaching to see that that remains true. Another way to understand our responsibility here is to ensure that the gospel is continuing to go forth in areas where Christ is not named and where the gospel is sparse. This is why we support overseas cross-cultural ministry through our cooperative giving as we support the IMB, the International Mission Board, we're working hard to bring more visibility to the ministries, the missionaries that we support through the IMB, but that's a large part of why we're Southern Baptists. We're not Southern Baptists because the Southern Baptist Convention controls our church and tells us what we should do. We're Southern Baptists because we get to participate with other churches in church planting and gospel ministry around the world. That's a part of what it means to be a Southern Baptist church. You're cooperating together for the spread of the gospel. That's what we do. We also pray for unreached peoples every Sunday morning. You may pray and support, pray for and support missionaries on your own. Our family has done that for a number of years now. Catonsville Baptist Church in the past was instrumental in planting the Bethel Baptist Church in Ellicott City. Lord willing, someday we'll be able to help planting additional churches both here and sending people abroad to make disciples of all nations around the world. Nevertheless, again, that is the primary command to make disciples of all nations. We do that as disciples who teach what Jesus taught to people from every tribe and tongue and nation of the earth. That is what we are commanded to do. And we're commanded to do that as we go about the normal course of life. Now, I know that was a lot, but there are two other conditions to this primary command. And they should make sense after all of what we just said. Look again at verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The first condition we already addressed as you go. The second condition, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That should make sense already. For those who we teach the gospel, those who we preach the gospel to, when they believe they are baptized into Christ, according to Romans 6 and 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Remember, I mentioned that the Holy Spirit accompanies the preaching of the gospel. 
When we hear and believe, we're united with Jesus through the Holy Spirit in his death, burial, and resurrection. We're made to be dead to sin and alive to God. Just as Jesus was dead, buried, and rose again, so are we. This all happens spiritually, and it is done by the Holy Spirit. It's referred to as our baptism into Christ. Therefore, as a sign of our faith, we're commanded back in our text in Matthew 28 to be baptized. And here he's referring to water baptism. This was a common practice already in their day. And in their day, the practice of baptism was always by immersion into water. And if you think about it, if water baptism is an outward sign, a confession of the reality of our baptism into Christ, then sprinkling will never do because Jesus wasn't sprinkled into death, right? The practice of going down into the water and coming up again is intended to symbolize that reality of our allegiance with Jesus who was buried and raised again from the dead. As we are physically baptized or immersed into water, we are to do so in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Well, why in the name of all three? Well, it's because all three are instrumental in salvation. If you read through Ephesians chapter one, you'll see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all instrumental in our salvation. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you must be baptized in obedience to him. And the third condition, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, should be pretty clear as well. Again, discipleship has to involve teaching. And again, what we are taught is what Christ has commanded. It's never okay for a believer to be outside of or apart from the teaching of Jesus Christ. We do not have the right to abstain from his teaching, to deny his teaching, to alter his teaching, to make it more palatable to the masses. We are to submit ourselves to all of what Jesus taught. The question is, does that describe your life? If you are a Christian... Is your life characterized as being subject to all of what Jesus has taught? Do you submit to his authority, to his authoritative word? Is your default response to his word faith and obedience? Are you quick to listen to his word or are you easily distracted by other things? Are you constantly figuring things out on your own, attempting to chart your own course in life? Again, having your own truth to live by. A Christian is characterized by staying close to and by their willingness to obey the word of Jesus. But we cannot walk away from this passage without being absolutely convinced that if we are a disciple of Jesus Christ, then we are disciples of the one who is Lord over all. He has commanded us to further make disciples of him from the multitudes of the nations, the peoples of the earth, by first preaching a clear gospel to them so that they might know who he is, who they are apart from him, who Christ is and our collective responsibility to him, that we are to be about this business as we go through life, that we are to physically baptize in water those who come to faith in Christ And that for the remainder of our life on this side of heaven, we ought to be characterized by striving to learn all of what Christ commanded. Again, last week we looked at the basis of our calling. And that's the lordship of Jesus Christ. We discussed the business of our calling just now. And finally, we have in this text the blessing of our calling. And that's a fitting way to end this section. Because the job of making disciples of all nations among all the peoples of the world is no small task. It does require significant attention, labor, and sacrifice. It does require us to cooperate with others who are like-minded as disciples of Jesus. It does require of us that we be attentive to the nations that are both near and far. It does require that we be willing to suffer. Jesus addressed the reality that we're going to suffer in John chapter 15, verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If you are a disciple of Jesus, the world will hate you. If as a disciple of Jesus, you preach Jesus to the lost, the world will hate you. If as a disciple of Jesus, you teach others about Jesus and what he commanded, the world will hate you. 
if the world loves you, it may be because either you're not a disciple of Jesus or you're not seeking to live according to what he has commanded. There's a lot of discussion about the mercy ministry of Jesus, how he healed the sick, the lame, etc. And he certainly did all those things, but those were not his primary. That was not his primary ministry. And it's not our primary ministry. His primary ministry was his substitutionary death on the cross. And in order to make a way for people to enter the kingdom and his preaching ministry was the primary means to point people to that reality. He preached the coming kingdom and he continually emphasized that he was the only way to the kingdom. In fact, the reason why he was crucified was not because he did good works, not because of his mercy ministry, but because of his preaching. Because he preached the truth of the kingdom. And he said again, a disciple is not a student is not above his master. If they hated me, they're going to hate you, too. If you're preaching the truth. Well, when we go about our lives preaching the gospel, seeking to make disciples, teaching not our own opinion, but the teaching of Jesus, not trying to ingratiate ourselves to the world, but aiming to please Jesus, the world will hate us. And what is our comfort? Look at the end of verse 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus has not commanded us and left us alone to our own devices. He has not commanded us and left us to our own strength. He has not commanded us, given us a near impossible task to make disciples of all nations, nations of people who will by nature hate us. He has not commanded us and remain seated in his office as commander in chief and points us and tells us to go forth and to figure it out. No, he abides with us. He goes with us as we go forward. He said, I am always with you. No matter where you go, no matter how far you travel, no matter how difficult the road, I am always with you. I am always with you even to the end of the age. Time will fail before Jesus fails to abide with his people. He is with us. He is for us. And as Paul said in Romans chapter 8, there is nothing in all of God's creation that will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And again, he is Lord of heaven and earth. There's nothing and no one greater than him. So as you go about preaching and making disciples, so what if the world hates you? As you go about preaching and making disciples, so what if the world abandons you? So what if family, friend, coworker, classmate, Fill in the blank abandons you. If you are a disciple of Jesus, Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, the most important person in all of God's creation, the one who has all authority, he will never abandon you. So what more do you need? What more motivation do you need? What more fuel do you need? The question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that he is with you? Do you believe that he is Lord of heaven and earth? It's kind of like having the big brother that no one can topple, right? I remember many, 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 many years ago when I was in middle school or elementary school, I can't remember which one, there was some guy picking on me on the bus and I told my mom, I didn't talk to my brother about it, but the next day, my brother, when I got off the bus, I saw my brother walking down the street towards me. And I can't tell you how much joy was in my heart seeing my brother. And I don't think the guy didn't mess with me that day. But just the fact that my brother was there. My brother wasn't a big guy, but he was there. Because he heard and he knew and he came for me. Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth, beloved. And he sends you forth to tell others about him and to make disciples. What more do you need? Our big brother, our savior, our king, the one who's greater than all sends you forth and he is with you. Again, the question is, do you believe that? 
I asked you earlier who would risk their life for a lie. The answer is no one. To give up your life, to endanger your life, because those to whom you deliver a message hate and murder. They hated and murdered your master. Why wouldn't they do the same to you? And yet the apostles and those who came after them were willing to risk their lives because they knew that the one who commanded them to go forth is Lord of heaven and earth. He is risen from the dead and he is with them. Do you believe that, Christian? Do you believe that, Catonsville Baptist Church? I said this before and I'll say it again. If we do believe that, then all of what we do, all of what we are must be about making disciples of Jesus Christ. We need to be constantly in prayer for this. All of our endeavors and outward oriented ministry need to be about not just doing good for goodness sake. But everything that we do has to be about making disciples of Jesus Christ. That is what we're commanded to do. That is what we must do. We must be about that business. As you go, you need to be about making disciples, inviting people to church. When was the last time you did that? Giving someone a tract. Maybe you don't have all the words to say in your mind. Again, we have resources that literally spell it out for you and provide pictures. Sharing the gospel, being about the Lord's work. That's what we need to be about. In our prayers and our efforts, may the Lord grant us success as we move forward in seeking to make disciples for his glory and the good of all the nations. Let us pray. Father, we come before you once again grateful. Grateful for who you are. Grateful for our Lord, the one who is Lord of heaven and earth the one who is also our Savior, grateful that in him we find salvation, in him we find rest. In him we find grace, we find strength. In him we are given a mission. And that mission is to do the same that someone else did for us, to make known the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, would you help us as we go? Would you remind us of these things as we go forth? That we don't go forth for our own glory, for our own good, for our own benefit, but that we go forth in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We go forth in his name and for his glory. We go forth to take the good news of Jesus to the nation's so that they might be made disciples of him who is Lord of heaven and earth. Father, I pray that you would make that true of us at the Catonsville Baptist Church for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.